Chapter 23. Everything I Needed to Know About Life I Learned in Geometry. The opening quote for this chapter is from the Talmud. We do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. Before I studied geometry in high school, I thought it was about shapes like squares, triangles, and spheres. I had no idea about its history or that it evolved from an ancient understanding that was based on three self-evident truths, which in the language of geometry were known as the three core axioms. Together, they were used to describe all forms, locations, and relationships in the universe, but are most simply defined as plane, point, and line. The plane is an infinitely expansive space that is the container of all form. The point is a dot that describes the smallest coordinate within the plane. The line is a sequence of points like pearls on a necklace from which direction, distance, speed, and angles of relationship can be known. What I was to later find fascinating was the fact that the fathers of geometry did not invent the axioms or their principles, but discovered them as pre-existent. Even Plato said, Geometry existed before the creation. So, just like them, I too was able to locate their existence inside me to find the operation of each one mapped easily and perfectly onto my experience of the present moment, thought, and emotion. Here, the present moment is the infinite plane and container of all forms. All thoughts were points and emotions, the lines that describe relationships, i.e. location, direction, velocity, and angle of movement. As someone who was looking for his map, I was grateful to discover how equally well the operation of these three applied to both our inner and outer worlds. They were, in fact, exactly the same operators that only appeared different due to our perspective. One was out there and the other one in here. Nonetheless, I understood that it was due to that sameness that the fathers of geometry were able to map the laws of space, objects, and relationships they observed inside as plain geometry outside. They did not invent them, but merely observed what was hidden in plain sight. You don't have to take my word for it. You can verify how the present moment is your interior space, that thoughts occupy locations there, and your emotions always define your relationships to them. Let's take a minute to sit with our eyes closed to observe this. Get into a comfortable seated position and see what you begin to notice. Remember to breathe easily. After sitting with our eyes closed for a few minutes, what do you notice? Do you feel your body where it touches the surface of its support? Do you notice your breath as it comes and goes from your lungs? Are there sounds in the external environment or tingling sensations, points of pressure, pain and tension when you sense your interior? Does your attention go to thoughts, images, notions, judgments, ideas, concepts, or memories in this space? Is your mind jumping, moving, or flowing from one thought to another? If so, those forms that your mind is flowing towards are your thought forms, and what we call thinking is the activity of observing their shape. I say shape because each has a unique geometry due to the information they contain and the location they occupy in the space. This is why we are able to tell our thoughts apart from each other and know when we've, quote, made our point by bringing into external space what previously existed in internal space. Now, as you sit quietly, become aware of what sorts of feelings come. Remember, emotion is the energy emotion that we feel moving between thoughts in the plane. They flutter and undulate in the same manner that ripples do when a stone first penetrates the surface of the water. In this analogy, the plane is the water, the pebble is the thought, and the speed, angle, and direction of the waves 
determines the quality and movement that we feel as our emotion. Now, open your eyes and look into the external space and gaze upon any object, person, place, or thing. Do you notice the feeling changes when you shift your attention from one thing to another? Isn't it like changing a channel on a radio or television? Do you notice that an entirely unique feeling arises no matter how subtle when looking at different people walking by? You might even notice changing sensations in your body that correlate to what you observe with your sight. Try shifting from people to objects and notice how it feels. One moment you're looking at a person next to a chair, then a tree, slice of pizza, beautiful sunset, or containers of your favorite Chinese food. How do you feel? Do you notice when the feeling changes? Well, I do, but then I really like pizza and Chinese food. But regardless of what we like or dislike, we will discover our relationship shifting with respect to the things in our world by how we feel. Some may wonder why any of this is important. It's important because we need to understand this reality if we hope to navigate our lives without fear leading the way. There are, however, some conditions to understand first, like the fact that our map already exists, whose features function for us as consistently as the axioms in geometry. Also, in understanding how all expressions are composed of thought and emotion within the present moment, we establish our constants, our building blocks of all possible life experiences. Finally, we need to understand how the content of our experience informs our directives so that we may appreciate the guidance given. In the same way that all physical forms, objects, and their energetic relationships pre-exist in the infinite plane of geometry, all thought forms and emotional relationships already exist in the present moment. We don't create any of them no matter how much we might like to think we do. Another way of saying this is that thought and emotion do not create the present moment any more than a point or line creates the plane. Rather, the moment is the field of all possibilities, thereby making thought and emotion our experience of the plane revealing and expressing itself. So, why do we experience different emotional qualities or tones in relation to our thoughts if all are of equal value to the present moment in the same way that all points are to the plane in geometry? If this is true, how then could one thought inspire strong reactions and some none at all? How is it possible that all thoughts are of equal value and yet I experience different emotions in relationship to them that in turn affect my sense of direction as either moving towards, away, or stationary? I thought it might be a good idea to find out why. Have you ever noticed which thoughts pull you or push you and which ones don't? I know, for instance, that when I think about going to the beach on a warm, sunny day, I feel drawn to the idea of being there. Likewise, if I were to think about being chased by a grizzly bear or my house burning down, I feel the desire to get away. Meanwhile, if I were to think about going to play the slots in Vegas, skydiving or bungee jumping, I feel nothing. They have no pull for me, so my feelings remain neutral. But why is this the case? Why did some thoughts and emotions elicit responses and others not? I concluded that the only way for this to be possible was if one thought had established a hierarchy for itself above all others. I was to discover, however, that there was no one thought that was actually more important than any other. It only appeared to be so because of my habit of considering it first. Just like the imaginary person that I strove to become in order to be liked or successful and ultimately safe, there was one thought which had become more important than the one I actually was. That thought is what many philosophical, religious, and spiritual traditions call the ego, 
which is merely the idea of who we think we are. But in becoming the habitual point of view that is considered before all others, it sustains itself by determining whether everything else is either a challenge to or an endorsement of its survival. As it is a point and therefore just another thought, those thoughts and feelings that allow it to maintain its primacy, it will crave and draw closer, while those that do not, it neglects, rejects, denies, and pushes away. And it is the force created from this pulling, craving, and pushing, averting that determines the direction, distance, speed, and angles of the emotions that are found moving between our first thought, our ego, and everything else. In returning to our wordplay, we could even say that ego is the energy to go towards or away as it's always on the move and is the very thing that incites us to be reactive instead of responsible and accepting of what arises as a content of our experience. It is our ego that makes it impossible for us to be still and simply guided by what is normally, naturally present. At the time I made this discovery for myself, it seemed as if I was at the end of my proverbial rope no matter what direction I took. All was hopeless until in giving up the search to find my way out, I relaxed enough to notice how my thoughts and emotions came unbidden. Even though I had already come to a point where I was aware that I was not the author of my own life, having to revisit this concept was actually quite troubling this time, for it led to the sobering revelation that I was also not in control of my life and something else was causing my thoughts and emotions to emerge from my moments. And one might ask, Given the nature of what I was going through, why should this be such a problem? Why couldn't I just relax, knowing that the fault for my failures was not my own, that I could cast responsibility onto something else and call it a day? But then the thought occurred that maybe what controlled my life had not served me so well. Or, if it had, then perhaps my precious free will, my sense of freely choosing in the world, was not so free after all. For if thought and emotion arrived uninvited into my consciousness, my place, then in what place could I exercise my free will, if not here? Where was the domain of my free will? Basically, the question became, what was I free to do with my will when the things I exercise it on are not of my choosing in the first place? The answer to this was quite astonishing to me, as I realized that the nature of what we call free will is that it's free only to the extent that we accept what has arisen in any moment. We don't get to decide what shows up, only how freely and graciously we will to accept it. That's it. At first, this notion was both scary and emasculating. I felt bound and trapped, as if I had no power at all. Knowing that these feelings indicated I was making a mistake about what was occurring, I decided to look for the truth of it by solemnly visiting the many moments, days, and events of my life to find out how often I had really been in acceptance. What I found was that I had accepted hardly anything at all. Instead, I had denied and rejected or simply run from most of it. Regardless of circumstance, I had complained, explained, judged, or resisted what I was thinking, feeling, and sensing. Sadly, I was not merely opinionating or discerning as I like to believe, but had an unconscious habit of always sitting in judgment and saying no to just about everything in my life. And in those few times in which I actually said yes, frequently it was in service to my ego. I had established a trend through my own negate activity that had created the minefield of my life. In choosing to negate and not embrace life as it unfolded, I condemned myself to an experience that lacked any means of escape. 
Life, in fact, pursued me wherever I tried to run, trying at each point of thought and line of emotion to express the truth of its existence. I just lacked a way to notice this because I was too busy denying, complaining, and taking without any reason to listen, accept, and receive. Clearly, I had intellectually understood the suggestions of Rumi in his poem, The Guest House, but as a practical exercise, I had refused to invite in my sadness, sorrows, and fears at the time I needed to, which was in each moment they came to my door. So now, like an angry and neglected mob, they pushed and pulled against each other, crowding the street, the yard, and the very threshold of my life. For in being so long denied their purpose, each in their own way made difficult the path to my door for every new piece of guidance that in encountering the crowd outside would often become lost or confused and unable to fulfill their purpose as well. It was now evident to me how in each moment life had sought to gift me guidance on the basis of a very, very simple choice, to be or not to be in acceptance, and all I had done was to say no. Free will, then, is ultimately a choice to accept the gift of being guided into harmony with the purpose that is moving in life each moment, or to reject it. In each moment, we can choose to notice, acknowledge, and accept, or we can ignore, deny, and reject. When we unconsciously resist the guidance given, we are not only exercising our free will for the sake of ego, but are mistaking the purpose of life. Is it any wonder, then, that we feel so lost? So, how do you feel right now, knowing that we don't author our thoughts and emotions or have free will in the way you might have supposed? Is it comforting, scary, binding, or freeing? After all, we're only talking about a bunch of ideas, right? Even so, do they threaten or uplift us? And further, who's the one who feels this? Is it the idea of me who's responding or the who I am? If we feel threatened, it is the idea of me. And if we feel uplifted, it is the authentic me. The authentic me can only accept and feel free, and the negating ego can only deny and feel trapped. As long as we continue to mistake one for the other, we will never understand why it is that we are never fearful, angry, or upset for the reasons we think we are. For in truth, we are only upset because something has come to our door that our ego chose not to accept because it contradicted its very existence. The ego is eternally obsessed with one thing and one thing only, self-preservation through persistent separation. This is why my idea of me felt betrayed when my friend abruptly told me that he'd been complimenting me for years in the hopes that I would eventually shut up about myself. There went 10 years of that relationship. Or the naked terror I experienced when I realized I might not be the spiritual person I always hoped to become. Clearly, both situations were cause for upset, but what was the underlying reason? It wasn't due to what others thought about me, even though I appeared to direct my anger, frustration, and disappointment at them. But when I looked a little deeper, I saw the truth. My anger has always been directed towards my idea of myself, the persona my ego supposed I should be. What I didn't understand at the time was that my uncomfortable feelings were simply indicators telling me that I had just mistaken some ego-generated belief for my reality of who I am. Still clueless about this, for many years I remained distracted and ceaselessly provoked into the habit of running away at the whim of my other person. What a mess. Fortunately, it was through this very process I learned that the purpose of guidance was always to direct me towards what was true in the present moment by informing me on every level of experience, my mental, emotional, and physical bodies, when I had departed and how to find my way back. 
Look at it this way. Most of us think that what happens in our physical body is unconnected to our mental or emotional ones. But the truth is that whatever is taking place in one is also taking place at the same instant in the others. This is why when consuming substances that are not well suited to our bodies, like eating too much at dinner, for instance, brings about the stomach ache, the indigestion, and general discomfort. But it also brings up possible feelings of sadness, boredom, or loneliness. All of a sudden, we find ourselves wallowing in all the thoughts about all the things we do that make us miserable. It can be as simple as those times when I feel afraid. I hold my breath, my body becomes tight and rigid, and I'm overwhelmed with the belief that I'm trapped and have no options. But when I'm happy, my body is relaxed and at ease, my breath is even and light, and my mind can see no lack of opportunity. The world is my oyster. Too often, we don't notice this connection because each body, again mental, emotional, and physical, has a different medium of experience. This is why when we need food or water, we are hungry and thirsty. We tend to want to move when feel stiff, and when tired, we seek rest. It's automatic, and guess what? Each impulse is uninvited. But more than that, whenever we violate any of the laws that govern our bodies, no matter which level or medium, we feel discomfort on the level of the indiscretion. The simple act of touching a hot stove with our hand, which triggers the immediate need to pull it back, is evidence of our guiding working. So quickly, we remove our hand from the heat and get it under cold water or in some ice. Why? Because the moment before we had just violated a law regarding our physical body and now must take steps to address the damage by restoring its health, its truth. This is equally true of our mental body, as it too has its laws of nature, which when violated will instantly, even preemptively, inform us when we have confused our beliefs, assumptions, and opinions for what is true. And it achieves this by giving rise to a sense of discord on the mental level as a kind of pinch, confusion, dissonance, doubt, or fog. Sometimes it comes as nothing more than the question, why am I doing this? Or we think quietly to ourselves, is this right? Is this really what I want? But to notice any of this, we have to be paying attention. And this is challenging because we tend to be unaware of what we think or how often we confuse belief for reality. But whenever we do, we will know it instantly by the sense of discord generated to tell us we have violated the law of mind. Needless to say, violating the law of our emotional body is much the same. There may not be a hot stove or frying pan or a confusing question, but there are persons, places, and things that push our buttons. Thankfully, the law of the emotional body is very basic. If by accepting we experience gratitude or love, then every time we feel jealous, enraged, angry, or fearful, we are being informed that we are denying and not being responsible to the present moment or our authentic self. And what is our tendency when we feel such emotions? Do we remove ourselves from the heat of the situation? Strangely, no, we don't. We keep it right where it is and maybe even add more fuel to the fire. For we interpret the intensity of our anger or fearful emotion as confirmation that we are correct in our position, but nothing could be further from the truth. Yet this is how we have been conditioned to regard violations of our emotional body. Seldom do we stop to consider how our turmoil merely evidences the fact that we are making a mistake right now in this moment. Sometimes the violation starts as a ripple, a faint pinch, or sense of discord that over time gives rise to stronger and stronger sensations until it finally gets our attention by banging at the door. The stronger the sensation, the harder our emotional body is trying to tell us something about what we are doing or about to do. It's just that now it's become amplified to the point that it can't be ignored, which is the point. The funny thing is that if the emotion were true, we would be feeling peaceful and still and free. 
The problem for us all is that we miss the truth of this because we live in a world that uses fear to justify choices rather than guide us away from those we are about to make. For it is not widely understood that fear exists to inform us in this moment right now that another way exists to get where we're headed. In this sense, fear is the emotional equivalent of the large, bright red road sign that reads, Stop! Road ends, not an exit or wrong way. So this is the problem, and it's not just a product of our time. It's been going on for eons. The result has been to inculcate a practice of fear in and around the very fabric of everyday life, making it next to impossible to notice or intend to even the most mundane of choices without fear participating in all of them. Unconsciously, we remain addicted to a process that has nothing to do with what life is about because it perpetuates the idea of getting somewhere, but there's nowhere to go. The only way out, so to say, is through here. Clearly, becoming free of fear can be a difficult process, not only because our ego pushes and pulls us, but also because our efforts to escape generates the energy that holds us hostage. It is in recognition of this truth that the wise tell us peace. Be still, drop the ego, or let it die. But it can no more die than can any other thought. So where does that leave us when we may only end up where we start? It leaves us with the need to remember we are the place of the present moment and forget that other person, the ego, that we never were. It is in this perspective that we realize how the purpose of guidance has always been to free us from the illusion of change to which our ego remains hopelessly addicted. Instead, we are reminded gently over and over again to be present in every moment, even while on the road to the things we are seeking. 